Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so typically, um, you know, it's the fifth Sunday. That's sometimes is a little bit, we do things a little bit unusual. And then when we have a congregational meeting, we do things a little bit unusual. And in congregational meetings, I typically have a shorter than usual message addressing matters relating specifically to our church. People usually look forward to this because there's often a lot of scolding involved. Um, <laughs> you know, here are the things we are doing well, here are some things we could be doing better, and here are some things that irritate me that just need to stop, you know, that sort of thing, and so on. And, and the things that irritate me, it's always a short list, you know, chronic tardiness, not careful with coffee, kids playing with musical instruments, running through the sound booth, a third of the church hanging out in the back hallway, and 40 or 50 other things. Just a short list. Just a short list. So this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to talk about one of the parts of our Sunday morning service and give that our entire focus, and that would be our congregational prayers. And as you know, this is something that various members share in. We have a list of those who are willing, and we rotate through that list, giving each one an opportunity to do it about once or twice a year. And I love it that we can do this and that we have so many who are willing and it reflects that every member ministry principle that we all believe in, and in many ways is one of our distinguishing marks. But before we get into that, I, I want to set things up with a, a, a story, a true story, and um, kind of start things off here on a light note, and eventually we'll end up with the subject at hand. Many, many years ago, on my 40th birthday, a number of my friends, all who were involved in the pro-life battle at that time, held a surprise party for me, and one of the gifts that I received was a pair of handcuffs. And um, apparently, the person thought that it would be useful during um, those Operation Rescue events, you know, that I could just hand it over to the officer, offer it to him, and here, you can use mine, and then hide the key in my mouth or something like that. I don't know. It was, it was a novel gift. It was a lot of fun, but they are, you know, relatively useless. And um, I kept them here in my office, and maybe 15 years ago or so, a couple of our teens, after youth group, were snooping around in my stuff, and um, I've told this story before, and they found them, and they thought it would be fun if they handcuffed themselves together, which they did but they did not have the key, okay? This is something that you want to think about before you do something like that. Um, I don't remember how they got out of them. I think that they had to get some special tools, maybe a, a special saw because it's hardened steel, but in the process, the handcuffs were, of course, destroyed, and um, I found out about all this, you know, several days later, and so they bought me new ones, and I still have those. I keep them in my office even now because one never knows when something like that might be useful, all right? And um, I also keep a wooden paddle as well in my office, but I'll save stories about that for another time. <laughs> All right. Now, there actually was a time when the handcuffs were useful, a time that I had actually forgotten about until a couple people reminded me after my sermon two weeks ago. And in that sermon, as you might remember, I complained that while it is okay to scrutinize congregational prayers, 
the purpose of them is to join in them with their own yea and amens, agreeing with the words of praise and thanksgiving and the request being made. And my remarks on that, they kind of came across as though we have this climate here of just evaluating everything and just evaluating. And because of this, a number of our folks aren't willing to come up here to pray, and I complain that this is a problem. Everyone remember me talking about that? So two different people from two different sides of the room came up um, after that and said that I was the one largely responsible for this intimidating and chilling climate. <laughs> and, um, you know, you wonder why people are afraid to pray. Don't you remember? And then they told me what happened, and I had forgotten about it until they told me. And so the stories we're telling, it's a funny one, and it leads into this morning's subject. So maybe 10 years ago or so, I don't remember when, John Nelson, who unfortunately isn't here to enjoy all this, but um, uh, he's he's down in Newcastle struggling with the bowling alley there again, but maybe he might be able able to watch this. He had, John Nelson had some what we call patripassionism in his congregational prayer. So I'll come back to what patripassionism here in, in a moment. But after the service, I grabbed Denny. Is Denny here? Okay. Um, all the fun people aren't here today for this story. All right, I, well, for the story, for the story. Players in the story. So after the service, I grabbed Denny and that pair of handcuffs in my office, and we found John in the kitchen, and we announced ourselves as the doctrine police, and we placed him under arrest. <laughs> And um, he was charged with the heresy of modalism, and we slapped those handcuffs on him while we read him his rights, basically the right to plead guilty, because if you haven't noticed, you don't have many rights here as members. So, <laughs> so this was all in good fun. It was a playful thing before for, between friends. John thought it was funny as well, and still does. We just talked about it uh, last week and had good laughs, and some, but somehow the story got out. You know, imagine that. Um, and um, even if seen in the playful light that it was intended, one can see why it might have a crippling effect on getting volunteers. And uh, so, yes, I stand before you guilty as charged. I contributed to the problem I complained about in that sermon two weeks ago. But in my defense, I was careful to say, if you will remember, that it is okay to pay attention to the theology of a public prayer, and like all theology, we must test it, as Paul exhorted the Thessalonians. But admittedly, handcuffing someone who slips up might come across as loveless orthodoxy. (laughs) So I I can only imagine how the story might might sound to an outsider who would ever hear about this. So all I can say is this. I actually cannot guarantee that someone praying a patripassionist prayer won't get the handcuffs. I'm I'm reluctant to make that promise. I can say that this would take place in one of the side rooms and not in front of everyone. So just take comfort in something like that. All right, so how many volunteers have I now lost? Only only a few, only a few. All right. (laughs) So all that was just to get to this the opportunity to talk about patripassionism. And um, I have several comments to make about our congregational prayers, but we're going to start with that one because it is worth talking about. So this pops up now and then. It's a common thing in prayers really everywhere. Uh, There's nothing malicious going on, but we would just do well to be careful and try to avoid it. Patripassionism is the name of a doctrine that claims that the Father became the Son and died on the cross. 
So patri equals fa means father, passion equals suffering. And so on the cross, it was the father, it was the father who suffered the penalty of our sins. He's the one who made atonement. And if you remember past teachings on the Trinity, this is a form of heresy called modalism, which denies the distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, claiming that they are simply three different names or modes or roles of one solitary person. That instead of being a perfect and complete unity of three persons, triune, God is a solitude. Okay, remember all that in past teachings? And here's what patripassionism looks like in a congregational prayer, and it's quite common. The prayer begins by addressing our Heavenly Father with words of praise, and then requests are made up or offered up to Him, and then before the prayer is concluded, somewhere in there, He is thanked for dying on the cross. Um, and I'm sure we've all have done this at one time or another. We get things muddied up unintentionally. Fortunately, the correction is a simple one. We just have to remember that we thank him for sending his son to die on the cross. And, uh, and because it is, remember, the father, as we sang this morning, the father so loved the world that he sent his son. And the son, in obedience to the father, suffered the penalty of our sins and atoned for them. Now, some might think that we shouldn't be that fussy about how prayers are prayed and focus more on the fact that God knows our hearts. We hear this often, and there's certainly truth to that. But at the same time, congregational prayers are a bit different. They are like congregational songs. They are both vertical and horizontal. We just need to talk about that. Uh, they are prayed to the Lord on behalf of the church body, and they serve to inform and instruct the church body as well. And because such prayers usually refer to biblical and theological truth somewhere in there, and because we are exhorted to test all things, there should be at least some measure of evaluation going on from the one giving the prayer and from those hearing it and joining in. So again, the context here in all of this is congregational prayers. It's offered up to God on behalf of others, the whole church family, in a formal and public setting. And based on this, such prayers, I think we would all agree, should be prayed carefully and not casually. And when it comes down to it, the best way to develop that carefulness is to grow in one's own theological and biblical understanding, and then you really don't have to worry about it when you offer a prayer in public. So does all that make sense? All right, we're all on the same page, more or less. So uh, how uh, did my volunteers shrink anymore? They will continue to shrink as the morning goes on. <laughs> all right, another heresy that denies the Trinity is subordinationism, which we typically refer to here as, anyone want to take a shot at, as Arianism, okay? Um, and it's, uh, in the first year that I was the pastor, we had a clear example of Arianism in a Sunday morning congregational prayer. And it was very noticeable, and it was quite awkward, and this was back on Pearl Street. The person thanked God for creating Jesus, okay? It's kind of a problem, <laughs> And as a new pastor to this church at the time, I wasn't especially eager to embarrass the person. I didn't know how I, how I was going to handle that. And, but yet, you know, what do I do? Do I let what was said stand? And my sermon was next, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And as I'm walking up, I'm all stressed out, walking up to the podium. And then Jim Kayot, I remember this so distinctly, he was... Uh, he and Jan were new at the church. They were considering uh, attending here, and Jim grabs me, and he says, 
does this church believe that God created Jesus? <laughs> well, now I have to address it. <laughs> and there's just no smooth way of doing this. And um, everyone is now seated. The room is quiet. And uh, the one who gave the prayer is seated. And um, I walk over to him. And as discreetly as I could, everybody is watching. Um, I gave him the benefit of the doubt and quietly said, I think you misspoke. You meant to thank God for sending Jesus, right? Not creating him. Well, fortunately, he realized his mistake, immediately addressed the congregation with a clarification and apology, and so that actually went really well. But, you know, just to speak candidly here, things have to be pretty blatant before I'm going to take that kind of action again, um, because I'm always going to lean on the side of being a coward, you know, like, is it, is, was it that bad? Let's, can we just let that one go? All right. All right, so while we're on it, Next, um, I have another example of, you know, doctrinal uh, in this whole category of doctrinal mishaps in congregational prayers that this one often comes up, and um, it, it's going to sound pretty picky, but I, here's my chance to get into it. It's, it's not as troublesome as patripassionism that we talked about earlier, but it too at least suggests a modalistic view of the Godhead that we, that we spoke of. So I first noticed it many years ago when someone, I don't remember who, broke from the standard formula in Jesus' name or something similar to in your name. And then others started doing it as well. And it just kind of became a, a habit. And I've, I've heard this elsewhere, not just here. It seems to be a commonplace in churches, in other churches as well, everywhere. So I, I, I addressed this briefly when we did the series on the Trinity. I've made a note of it in an instruction sheet that those who pray get, but it still creeps in now and then because old habits seem to die hard. And, and I believe that this habit is one that is worth breaking, and I'll explain this. In public prayers, we want to take advantage of that opportunity to openly declare that the prayer is to the Father in and through His Son, Jesus. Jesus is our mediator, and his role as our mediator should be clearly stated, proclaimed boldly with confidence and conviction. So to say, in your name, is to say that we come to the Father by the Father, which is kind of meaningless at best, and at worst, when you think about it, snubs Christ as our mediator and his precious work of atonement. And we, no one really wants to do that. And on a related note, you know, we should remember that one doesn't have to say some formula at the end of a prayer for it to be valid. Like this morning, we prayed the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't have a formula at the end. Uh, the formula in Jesus' name, those words, isn't like the send or submit button on the computer. Um, it is assumed that we all know that it is because of Jesus that we have access to the Father. But again, in public prayers, congregational prayers, it is generally a good practice to declare that openly. It has the same confessional effect as, for instance, that of reciting one of the creeds. You know, we're, we're taking advantage to really punctuate that. And so to help with this, I've made some revisions to the instruction sheet, kind of just keep us uh, together on the same page there. All right, the next one on my list doesn't reflect any heresy or false teaching or anything necessarily wrong, uh, but... I always have to talk about something I'm fussy about, and so this is one that I'm fussy about, and I, and, uh, I just like to see something worded differently. I hear it almost every Sunday, and, I, and uh, this is the best time to talk about it. There's probably really never a good time to talk about it. <laughs> about a year ago, um, 
I'm not looking at the congregation much because people are really giving me bizarre looks, but about a year ago, someone, I don't remember who, concluded their prayer by asking God to protect Wendell's lips from error, right? No big deal. But since then, those particular words have been repeated many, many times, and it now has become part of the tradition. It's been standardized. In fact, I think, I think folks now believe that they're supposed to say this, and the words are always the same, protect Wendell's lips from error, all right? So I know the point that is being made, and I'm certainly not proclaiming that I'm incapable of error, but this particular wording is a bit strange, because when I hear it, I'm over there, and I'm kind of like chuckling to myself, like, too late. <laughs> the sermon is finished. It's all scripted out. You should have prayed that you know, two weeks ago. <laughs> and so if I were to say something wrong, I guess the prayer, as it is worded, is that God would actually freeze my mouth, literally my lips, so that I can't say the thing I shouldn't say. And I'm always kind of like chuckling to myself, visualizing what that might look like. So I would suggest that there might be a better way to make the point. It's a good point to make um, for those who are inclined to make it. You know, may what we hear today not only help us to better understand your word, but also be changed by it. And whatever isn't true or helpful, may we not be adversely affected by it. And punish Wendell for any error he might make today. Hopefully he will be more careful the next time. And punish him as harshly as he needs to be punished, all right? So... All right, am I making too much of nothing? Yeah. <laughs> if they prayed it two weeks ago, that's yeah, prayer like... was for today. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm all confused. All right. What? <laughs> You're not the only one. All right. Let's keep going. The next one pertains to everyone in the audience because... There'll be less and less people willing to pray now, and most of you will be in the audience. Um, so this one pertains to everyone hearing the congregational prayer. We as a church family, corporately, I want you to really appreciate this, are coming before God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, the ancient of days, the Lord of hosts, the great God and king of the whole universe, seen and unseen. The moment warrants a certain kind of respect and reverence. If you're wearing a hat, please remove it. If while every head is bowed, you think that this would be a good time to slip out discreetly to the restroom, it isn't. If um, it, it's, it's not a time to check your emails or Facebook or that camera app on your phone to see what's going on at your house. If you're distracted with doing some busy thing, just put that on pause for a few minutes. This short time, it's just three or four minutes, it's a time that should be approached with a, a special reverence and humility and respect, not casually, not indifferently. We should try to give it our undivided attention. And this reverence and respect is something that I came to actually appreciate um, after visiting other churches years ago during those four-week sabbaticals that I used to take. So the Catholics and the Lutherans and the Episcopalians, even the liberal Episcopalians, they were all quite reverent and respectful. While most evangelical churches, I'm sad to say, were so casual during that time, it borderlined on the profane. And not just the congregation, but those in charge. So I don't want to put them down, but the whole thing was really disturbing. As one example, the prayer time was typically used um, as a transition from one part of the service to another. I think I've shared this before. While everyone had their heads bowed and eyes closed, um, uh, the music team would quietly exit 
Uh, the pulpit would discreetly be rolled in. The lights would be turned up. Uh, the screen would roll up into place. The ushers would come up quietly to the front, take their place so that they could collect the offering once the amen was given. It was all very polished. It was, it was quite scripted out. And it was all this took place during the congregational prayer. And so from a producer's perspective, it was a perfect time to make all these transi transitions, you know, without being noticed. But it, it, it troubled me. And I was guilty because I would watch all this. <laughs> um, but I was, after all, on a mission there to scrutinize, wasn't I? But so... <laughs> What's that? Whatever helps me sleep at night. <laughs> you want to come up here and do this? Right. So I think our, I think churches, ours included, now on a serious note, need to be careful here that we don't send a message that we don't want to send, you know, to visitors, to each other, or to heaven itself, that nothing all that important is going on at the moment. Because during the congregational prayer, something very important is going on. So if it's too long to stand, that's no problem. Go ahead, just take your seat, but let's at least stay at our seats. Let's stop what we're doing. Let's engage in the prayer. Let's show respect. Give it our undivided, att give it our undivided attention. All right, sound good? All right, next. <laughs> There's more. <clears throat> but first, a little explanation. There are a lot of things that can be included in a congregational prayer. And to keep things manageable, we rotate through a list. So like on one Sunday, if you've noticed, we'll pray for the missions we support. Another Sunday for government leaders, another Sunday for the persecuted believers, the next for pro-life ministries. And we, and we have those things that we pray for every week, but other things we kind of rotate around. Because if we were to pray for everything every time, it would get really, really, really long. So we, again, spread it out. And what we include in our prayers is also an indication of what we see as being important. And this is why I encourage pro-life pastors who are in less than pro-life churches to include unborn babies in their congregational prayers because it conveys that this is important and it helps to foster a pro-life climate in the church. A lot really does take place in that way through a congregational prayer. So just as you can tell what the priorities are of a person by the sorts of things he prays for, so it is true with the church. So that said, we, like all churches, we have to be somewhat selective on what we include and don't include on a Sunday, and it often comes down to a judgment call, and admittedly, there will be times when, the judge, when that judgment that will be made will be a wrong one, so we simply would just ask that you would show some forbearance and patience with us in all of this. As an extreme example, and it's an extreme one, I think I've shared it before, but and it's a true one. It took place many years ago while back on Pearl Street. And we had a member who, before he came to church, let his dog out. The dog ran off, then come back. And he wanted us to pray that morning that the dog would return home safely. All right, so I love dogs. I told him that I'd pray for this dog, but it isn't the sort of thing we would include on a Sunday morning. And he was really offended. Um, so I know that these things can be emotional. You have to be kind of careful how you work, how you work around these sorts of things. But Seriously, I just had a hard time with it. Um, I had a hard time visualizing that prayer because at the time, Denny Hamilton, a lot of you will remember him, he was struggling with cancer. Uh, the diagnosis did not look very well for him. And, and um, so I could, you know, we're praying for him. And then the next moment, we're praying for Fido to come home. It just was too much of a disconnect. So there's a certain spectrum here of what is important. And this was, I believed, was outside it. And fortunately, these kinds of examples are not common. 
Um, so just something to kind of keep in mind. And, and while we're at it, uh, we have to be mindful that because everything now is posted on YouTube, including the congregational prayer, we need to be a little careful because one never knows who is watching. And so if you want us to pray for someone, we really do need to get their permission first. And I know people get testy with me about this, but we've got to have it. We don't want to be guilty of broadcasting people's names and their problems on the internet for the whole world to watch. Um, probably not the whole world is watching, but you know what I mean. All right. Agreed? Agree on that? All right. And when you have something, it would be very helpful if you could get it to us ahead of time, email it to us or something instead of um, hitting us up at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. That's really not the best time for obvious reasons. <laughs> All right. So on that note, if you have something you want the congregation to join you in prayer in, or four, then I would encourage you to go to Google Groups. That's why we set that up. It's the fastest way to get information out, and it reaches the most people. And there we, you know, uh, we leave it up to everyone's good judgment on what is and isn't appropriate. All right, finally, if you're on the list of volunteers to give the congregational prayer, then I would encourage you to prepare ahead of time for it. You can see this coming up in the schedule. And I would just encourage you to, you know, in, in particular, to borrow some of the language from any of the many uh, prayers in the Bible. And there are some great examples, for instance, from Paul's letters. Um, in his letter to the Ephesians, he prays that they will come to know God better, that they will come to know the hope to which God has called them, that they will be strengthened with God's power, that they will be rooted and grounded in love, and that they will fully grasp the depths of Christ's love is just a few examples in that letter, and any of those would be quite fitting to include in a congregational prayer. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul prays that God, who began a good work in them, will carry it on to completion, that their love may abound more and more, that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Again, great examples here. And in his letter to the Colossians, he prays that they will live lives worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way that they would have great endurance and patience and would joyfully give thanks to the Father for their glorious inheritance. So we could go on. The letters in the New Testament are just rich with these kinds of examples. Of course, there are other prayers in the Bible that we could borrow from as well, including the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 and obviously any, any one of the 150 Psalms as a place to start. So even though we hand you a list of prayer requests that morning, we would just encourage you, feel free to include two or three lines from any of the numerous prayers in the Bible. Customize it accordingly, and if you borrow language in the Bible, you don't have to worry about doctrinal mishaps, do you? <laughs>